Welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. And today we're going to talk about climate change. After all, so many experts are calling this moment a climate crisis. However, as has become customary on Altamar, we're going to tackle this, however, from a different perspective, and we're going to specifically try to discuss the effects of climate change on global national security. As the earth heats up, sea levels rise and air quality decreases, countries face new tensions that not only affect their security from within, but also raises the risk of conflict in countries, within countries, among countries. And in 2016, the Obama administration officially linked climate change and national security for the very first time by publishing a presidential memorandum ordering more than 20 federal agencies to set up a timetable to create a plan protecting national security. Peter, this is a worldwide issue. Rising temperatures from carbon emissions, storms, droughts, and the recent deadly wildfires in Australia that we all watched from afar, kind of in a horrifying way. There's concern all over the world. Recently, ambassadors from the five Central American countries were asked about their nation's biggest concern, and as it was several years ago, it was unanimously climate change. Water and food shortages in the Sahel have led to accelerated immigration, drought in Syria, on top of the civil war has led to massive human displacement. The global effects of climate change are beginning to be felt and the results are dire and they're likely to get worse. And we've already dedicated an entire episode a few months ago to the challenges and opportunities that a melting Arctic represents for global navigation routes. And then we talked about the security tensions arising from this competition between China, Russia, and the West for ownership of this new northern superhighway. But the Arctic is only one of many existential security threats that the world faces. So we're going to try and make sense of such an enormous topic and this new linkage and divide the threats into two big buckets. Mooney, I think the two-bucket approach is right on. And the first part of that two-bucket approach is the heightened internal conflict within nations. These internal conflicts come from things such as human displacement from climate emergencies and the security implications that comes from fighting from for scarce resources. If you look at the Syrian civil war or tensions in Somalia, for example, they were caused by severe droughts. I mean, the ethnic tensions, the political tensions, of course, were the detonators of both things. But those detonators wouldn't have existed if it wouldn't have been for those droughts and scarcity of food and water and the resulting hunger, fuel competition for those resources, not only in West Africa or Central America or Australia, but it happens all over the world. The destabilizing effects of fires and floods and droughts were visible in developed countries. You just have to look at Hurricane Katrina or the wildfires in Australia to look at the political consequences of these things. And the correlation of these things is impossible to ignore, and it's going to get worse. And, you know, we shouldn't forget to mention the internal cost of infrastructure destruction due to weather in the developed world. For You know, it's, it's of course, worse in poorer, fragile countries. But in the developed world, Mooney, have you ever been to Newport News? It's, it's where the largest U.S. Navy base exists on the East Coast. And there are streets that flood every single day. In, with, the, with the rise and the fall of the tides, impeding the passage of cars to bring kids back from school or to school or go to the supermarket. And what about military bases in Florida or Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean that may need to be moved because of flooding? So these erratic climate issues cause 
suspensions of military operations because there are wildfires or because there's frost or because there's rising seas or because there's too much rain. And it makes planning and operations for militaries so difficult and not to mention the rising cost of maintaining and updating equipment and maintaining the technologies under when it's under duress from climate stress. So that's the internal bucket. And what about the tension between countries caused by threats to military infrastructure, by displacement, by competition for natural resources? As extreme weather and water shortages make countries more likely to face security risks, they also, Peter, create space for terrorism. And there's many vulnerable hotspots around the world that are just basically with climate-created tensions that become political. And look at the world's very tense borders, Kenya and Somalia, where the world's largest refugee camp is there, a tug of war for shared resources along with geographical borders and tensions by refugees. Let's think about Venezuela and Colombia, other geographical borders, such as the millions of Africans fleeing the Sahel to cross the Mediterranean into Italy and Spain. It's changed the political and security landscape of Southern Europe. And those crises often trigger military responses and internal political and economic and social tensions in these countries that are that are targeted. And what can be done? Early last year, more than 80 member states spoke at the UN National Security Council meeting about the threat of climate change for international peace. The U.S., who's walked away from the Paris Agreement, doesn't recognize that climate change is even happening at the government level. And creating awareness at the global level in organizations such as the U.N. and others is great, but it really is sadly insufficient. As this becomes a bigger and bigger problem, policy options like reducing greenhouse gases and energy reduction options are really helpful in the medium term, but in the short term, Threats, and mainly security threats, which is the topic of today's podcast, are growing daily, and the likelihood of increased conflict is very, very high. To help us with this fascinating, scary scenario, we'll be joined by an ideal guest, John Conger, director of the Center for Climate and Security, one of the top experts in the world on the subject. He's a specialist on military implications of climate and a senior advisor to the International Military Council on Climate and Security. John has been a top expert at the U.S. Department of Defense on energy installations and environmental policy as Assistant Secretary of Defense, and he's had a plethora of other important posts at the Pentagon. Before his appointments at DOD, Mr. Congress served for 12 years on legislative staffs in the U.S. Congress and as an aerospace engineer and defense analyst supporting the office of the Secretary of Defense. John Conger, welcome to Altamar. Thank you very much. So let's keep it real simple at the beginning and tell me why is climate change such a national security question? Sure. I, I think it's fair to say climate change is a, is a, all sorts of a policy question. You know, it, it's, it affects economics, it affects health, but it also affects national security. Why is it a national security question? I think I normally think of it in three categories. First, it affects the ability of the military to do its mission today. Uh, it affects infrastructure, it affects readiness, it, it constrains training, um, it, and frankly, in some of the more extreme situations, uh, is the hurricanes or other extreme weather can take out a base for a certain amount of period of time. It also, in the, the sort of second category, I would say that it affects uh, the missions that we're going to have to do in the future. You start looking at more extreme weather uh 
more disasters and you have to anticipate an uptick in the requirements for humanitarian assistance and disaster response. You also have a whole new ocean that's appearing in the Arctic. As the Arctic ice recedes, and it doesn't take a science degree to, to see that the Arctic ice is receding, uh, the Navy's going to have a whole set of new responsibilities with, with a new ocean to patrol. There's new trade routes, new folks looking to do resource extraction. And so that creates a whole new freedom of the seas, freedom of navigation set of issues that the Navy's uh, going to have to deal with in the future. And then the third category, so you've got my, my job today, my job tomorrow. And then the third category is sort of a blanket look at the geopolitical stability dynamics. And as you contemplate the world in which we operate, uh, you're, you're looking at food insecurity, water scarcity, uh, economic displacement, sea level rise. Uh, you, you're seeing uh, migration uh, factors that are, you know, perhaps smaller now than they will be in the future. And, and uh, at the end of the spectrum, you know, the potential to uh, cause conflict. And as you look at the geopolitical dynamics from the military perspective, that's the world in, there in which they're going to have to operate. But it's broader than that. Obviously, security is not just military. And it's all of the other international relations dynamics that we deal with. This affects the world in which we operate. Those stresses that I was describing have larger impacts on nations that are more fragile, uh, that barely have the capacity to deal with the problems they have today, never mind new ones that the climate imposes upon them. And when a nation becomes unstable, that can affect entire regions. It's not just going to be contained within, within that country. Uh, we saw how Europe was affected by a million Syrian refugees, and that changed the, the whole dynamic of politics in Europe. Those questions are ones without, that we wrestle with and that are broad and will only uh, continue to get become greater over time. John Pavel Kabat last year, chief scientist of the World Meteorological Organization, ranked extreme weather, natural disasters, climate change, and water crises as the four top existential threats for 2019. Do those continue to be the existential threats? Are there new kind of signals that are coming out that might be complicated for the years to come? So it depends on what you call an existential threat. And I think it, it also depends on, you know, how you, what your ranking system is, right? You know, I get asked often from a national security perspective, you know, what are the biggest threats? Is climate change a bigger threat than China or Russia? And, and I think it's the wrong question. So I wish that people would say, how does climate change, and frankly, all of those other pieces that you described, shape the environment in which we're dealing with all these other problems. How does climate change affect our relationship with Russia and the Arctic? How does climate change affect uh, the dynamics between the U.S. and Europe and therefore between China and Europe? How does uh, climate change shape uh, dynamics uh, in, in between India and Pakistan? Because, you know, frankly, Pakistan gets all, is already a water-stressed nation and they have conflicts between rural and urban areas, but they get all their fresh water from India. Uh, and so what happens when India shuts the water off? The, all of those dynamics are shaping factors. I know I'm not really answering your question, but I'm, I'll circle around to it. You know, you, you look at the Syrian civil war and uh, did climate change cause the Syrian civil war? No, but you had hundreds of thousands of refugees from the Iraq war inside Syria. And then you layer on that a situation where Syria had a huge agricultural sector and you impose upon it a record drought that lasts multiple years, those farmers all moved to urban areas with all the other refugees. 
did climate change cause that drought? No, but it made it more likely. Did that drought cause the civil war? No, but it made it more likely. It, it is, a, is a multiplying effect on the dynamics that you're dealing with. So if you're going to talk about existential threats, I don't know that, that I would say in, one, in a one-year period of time that I am so concerned that climate change is going to end the you know, worry about human existential threats in that one year. But I think broadly and over time, this is a long-term threat that we have to seriously worry about the effects it's going to have on nations, peoples, you know, millions of lives. And so for those people, yes, it's an existential threat. Uh, and you're going to have to worry about that. Ranking up you know, higher or lower, I, I, I'm not sure. I think it really depends on the, the yardstick we bring to the table. So you've mentioned the Arctic, you mentioned Syria and other regions in this link between climate and kind of geopolitical security. Are there any that we're missing, that we're overlooking in Latin America, in Africa, and even Europe? I would ask the question, is there any place that isn't affected? And I think the answer to that is no. There are going to be places that are more affected than others. There have been studies that, you know, you, you overlay climate change on a variety of different areas and you will find that the ones that are the most affected earliest are the ones that, that are more fragile. The U.S. deals with hurricanes and it, and it causes billions of dollars of damage and puts at risk, you know, many lives. And we throw money at the problem and we pull out of it. But there are other places where they don't have that capacity or capability. They don't necessarily have the ability to recover, and that and and it's in those places where the instability grows, and and in those places where you could even reach conflict and and have larger regional implications. Is there any place we're leaving out? No, I think you need to look at um, you know water scarcity in Latin America. Um, you know you know people. It is underreported that drought in Central America leads to migration out of Central America. I think it is underreported that in Venezuela, um, they have a, a reduction in water supply because of the melting of the glaciers, which leads to problems with their hydropower, which also leads to problems with water uh, availability to their citizens, especially amplified by the fact that the government is relatively incompetent and, and does not actually have a good water management strategy. And so therefore, climate change does have an influence there as well. You've got disaster problems across the, the Caribbean. You, you go to Africa and it's there's all sorts of, of climate problems. You look at India and Pakistan, which I mentioned earlier. You look at the Pacific where you have existential threats to island nations. And then you look at the Arctic where you've got great powers sort of elbowing each other out of the way for influence over a region that they see as increasingly important to global influence. There is no shortage of locations that, that uh, are Im impacted by climate change. You talked really, really well about how difficult it is for poor, more fragile countries to adopt because of lack of money, lack of resources. We have a particular problem in the West, and in particular in the United States, which is we have a important lack of policy consensus. I mean, there are people who do not can do who in, in power who do not believe that climate is an issue that we should be so preoccupied about. And so I guess one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, I find that national security is an area in which Americans perhaps can bridge disagreements. Is national security a way to create some type of a consensus on climate change? I think that it's fair to say that within the climate security space, there, there is some consensus. But you've got bipartisan legislation that moves through Congress. There was uh, Congress was passing 
parts of the National Defense Authorization Act when the Republicans were in the majorities and and you had President Trump in the White House, that was they passed a declaration that climate change is a direct threat to the national security of the United States. They passed climate resilience measures that to uh, improve the ability of defense infrastructure to be able to deal with climate impacts. There are practical, pragmatic measures in this space that I think uh, there is some consensus on. And is it bridge building? Is it a confidence building measure? Sure. I think it manifests itself that way. But I don't know that somebody's going to look at that and say, all right, because of that, I'm going to change all of my views on tax policy and regulation. I don't think that happens. And I don't think we're trying to have that happen. I think this is a wake up call to a lot of folks who would normally be skeptical about the impacts of climate change when they hear senior military officers, uh, retired or active, state that, that climate change is affecting their job and that they have to deal with this, that they maybe it's not something they're going to blow off. Maybe it's something that that is real that they have to acknowledge. And I think you've seen that tide change in Congress. Republican members who would in the past might have been skeptical about this issue listen to Secretary Mattis say that it's real and say, well, maybe it is. Now, now what do we do about it? There's where you get the debate. Right. I, I don't I don't want to be argumentative. I just it, but it does seem to me that the, the, the defense establishment has been very much on board on the climate change issue. I mean, I yes. you only have to go visit Norfolk, Virginia, one of the largest Navy bases on the East Coast, to see the impact of climate change yes. on uh, you know the residential neighborhoods and on the on the docks themselves. But but I want you to make the argument for our listeners. It doesn't seem to me that the Defense Department has had a sufficient impact on on the politics on the on the politicians not only appropriating money for the defense establishment, but across the board to really mobilize on the issue beyond the defense establishment. Well, I'm not sure they're trying to. So during the Obama administration, when, uh, when the White House wanted us to lower emissions, the defense establishment, you know, even the politicals, there was, they were saying, all right, yeah, we'll do that. That's our, our, our leadership's goal but we're gonna do it in the context that it helps our mission. So if we're gonna go for energy efficiency measures, that's gonna save us money that we can spend on mission and the co-benefit is the emissions reduction. If you're gonna do renewable energy, some a lot of places that saved money and some places it helps mission too. And we're gonna do that for mission reasons. So when we start talking about adaptation and resilience, they're all in because this is, a, this is about the climate affecting them and affecting their mission. So in that context, I think that that they were certainly bought in, but only to the extent that it was mission, that was their mission that was being affected. Well, when the administration changed and the and the Trump White House said you don't have to worry about climate change anymore, the Department of Defense said, well, well, okay, but we're going to anyway because it affects our mission, and that's the consistent line through all of this. As the DoD thinks about how climate change affects its mission, they're going to continue to take it into account. They are not going to enforce a political blind spot on themselves and create a vulnerability just because some politicians said that they have to. They are going to protect the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that are deployed out there in the world by taking into account all the factors they need to take into account. And if that means climate change, and they know it does, they're going to. In countries like China and Russia that really have not been pioneers in addressing the climate emergency, when this becomes a national security issue, what is the tone of conversations outside the U.S. in countries like these when the linkage is made? So it's fascinating. You know, I, I often think of myself as living inside the, D, the Washington, D.C. bubble. 
right? This is the, I've lived here for decades. This is the, you know, I worked on Capitol Hill. I wasn't in Congress per se. I was a staffer for the record. You get a certain perspective. And it is often, I would make the observation that, for example, in Congress, national security or being strong on national security is equated to how big is the military budget, right? If you go around the world, you have a different uh, answer on the security question. So, for example, you know, if you talk to the folks from New Zealand, uh, where they have actually incorporated climate change as a primary driver in the security strategy, well, what drives the size of their military? They're not defending against an invasion. It's driven by disaster response. And so climate change is a driving factor in how big their military is, for example, in that context. But if you go to Europe, they're thinking about different issues and they think about climate security in terms of development in, in Africa and the Middle East. If you go to Russia and you talk about climate change, I think there, there's a little bit of skepticism uh, there. But frankly, they're looking at the Arctic and how, do, how can they monetize this? And then China looks at the whole picture. And China is a fascinating example because China, um, sort of three aspects of the Chinese response to climate change. One, they've declared themselves to be a near Arctic nation, whatever that means, uh, and, and are looking at trade routes through the Arctic and wanting to be able to, to expand their influence there. They have more icebreakers than the United States. Second, they are developing relationships in the developing world where they are going in and providing quote-unquote climate resilience assistance uh, with strings attached. And so they are using the fear and validating the concerns of a lot of nations and and coming in and gaining influence and they see it as a mechanism to do that but and they are part of the dynamic there is they want to make sure they have access to food for their people and have the contracts for food for their people when there when there are food insecurity issues inside China but third and really the the one that worries me the most from a US national security perspective is they have decided to build relationships with the people who care about climate change who used to be who are our allies and, and who we have said, uh, we don't care about this issue, go pound sand. And so the Chinese will come in, even though they don't necessarily aren't taking the, the steps that they uh, need to in order to reduce their emissions, but say, we care about this issue too. Those you, the US, they're backing up. Let us help you lead on this and we'll be part of the in crowd. And that creates a dynamic in, in sort of international diplomacy, which I, I find to be it's just reflective of the fact that the U.S. is taking a step backwards from its leadership position. So basically the U.S. in the back seat. And then there's another issue that I'd like a little explanation on your part, which is the, the link between the climate emergency and the vulnerability to terrorism, not just for those countries that are fragile, but just in the developed world. Well, and, and so when I think about the link between violent extremist organizations and climate change, I look, um, and frankly, the examples I have are in the developing world where people will say, okay, if there's water scarcity in a region, those violent groups will take control over the water system. They will leverage that to either gain recruits or to extend their influence over places where they don't have the water over regions. And so, you know, Boko Haram is the example that is often cited in the the Lake Chad region and, and water is becoming more and more scarce there. And they are using that to recruit or to gain influence. And so the the by climate change causing stress in certain parts of the world it enables those organizations to gain influence so we've talked a lot about the things that people are not doing sufficiently or correctly tell me are there countries you like to point to that are doing this right i think it's hard to say that there is a single model nation right uh, that everybody should copy but there are things that people are doing 
that, that are correct. I mean, I, I quoted, I mentioned New Zealand earlier where they have integrated climate change into their, into their security strategy and have built a, a whole, you know, sort of security oriented climate plan or climate oriented security plan, however you want to characterize it. But they basically have, have said that we're going to do the following things because of climate change in our security apparatus. I think that's smart. There are other places where they have, you know, a focus on development, other places where they have a focus on emissions. And everybody's got different pieces of the puzzle that I think they're doing right. And even in the United States, the, the U.S. military is is looked at, you know, around the world as somebody who is actually paying attention to and responding to the impacts of climate change on the security apparatus more than a lot most other nations. And so the U.S. gets credit for that from the military perspective. So there's, I don't know that there's a single entity or a single nation that's got it across the board, but I think everybody's doing a lot of positive things and, and, and should all learn from each other. I think the lesson there is that everybody needs to look at what everybody else is doing and, and learn those lessons and, and keep that conversation going. If you were asked to write a memo for the new incoming U.S. president, whether it's this president coming back or a new president, and you wanted to point to one or two pieces of good news on the climate and one or two pieces that must be priorities first off. This is sort of my last question. I mean, I tell us what you would point to as positive and what you would point to as things that one must work on fastest. Okay. Well, in the shameless plug area, I will say that we've written this plan. It's called the Climate Security Plan for America, and it's on my website at climateandsecurity.org. Now that I've said that, um, I think if you want to look in uh, the I think about it in terms of establishing leadership priorities. I think when the White House says they want it, want you to do something that everybody else pays attention and it drives the priority list in any given agency. When the, when this White House didn't prioritize it, but Secretary Mattis said it was a real issue. I think that the, the Pentagon didn't put it on their top five of, of what most important things to do, but they didn't kick it off the list, right? And I, I think leadership establishment of the of climate and security as a priority, I think, is important on the top of, of things to do. I, I will uh, I will also say that I think that you need to look for consensus areas in Washington. You know, you can take a position that somebody else agrees with, and this in this town uh, uh, allows for very little of that to get done. You know, anybody can block something from happening. Well, where there is consensus, you need to move forward. And in the security space, there's consensus. And the other place I see consensus, in all honesty, is people talking about innovation. Now, some people say innovation is a way to get out of talking about regulation and taxes. That's fine. But if everybody's talking about innovation, uh, the people who want to make the ball move forward need to learn to take yes for an answer and, and, and say, all right, let's do that, and then we'll argue about the other stuff. And, and, and frankly, if somebody... Uh, and I'll, uh, this is this is a sort of a, a pet rock of mine. I, I've heard members, Republican members, talk about an Apollo program for clean energy as their solution to the problem. Well, the Apollo program was 150 billion dollars in today's dollars. And if you spread that over 10 years or so, that is an order of magnitude increase per year of what we're spending on research that could address a lot of emissions problems. And I think, frankly, they should take yes for an answer and go do that. And, and it would dramatically change the world in which we live in, maybe not in the next couple of years, but you spend that much money on R&D, and it's going to change things out in decades to come to, to the better. On that hopeful note, thank you, John Conger, for joining us at Altamar. It's my pleasure. Mooney, I don't know. I mean, John makes a great argument that the military brass accepts climate change, needs to uh, deal with climate change, and won't be moved from 
making sure that climate change is part of its calculations. I just really worry about how much that affects the broader politics here in the US and, you know, and with some other people, especially in Europe, who continue to doubt the issue of climate. And certainly it doesn't seem, you know, the military's determination doesn't seem to have won the argument with this president or with a lot of members of Congress. Well, they apparently let them work and let them continue to pursue their own goals. I just think that he also pointed out that the political goodwill and putting this on, on top of the political agenda makes makes a world of a difference. And we've talked about how the U.S. completely retreated from the whole climate conversation in the past few years, and it's left the voice to other players that really are not necessarily the best and most responsible geopolitical actors. So I'm a little bit optimistic that some things are being done, but I think that the people who are leading don't have a, enough of a voice. Yeah, I, I'm afraid I don't share your optimism. If you look around the world, and you look at the areas that he himself mentioned, whether it's the Sahel or Central America, the military is not going to solve problems in the Sahel or Central America. These are problems that are have to do with economics, have to do with demographics, have to do with politics. And unless and until we are able to understand how climate interacts with economics and politics and demographics, I think it's going to be a long haul before we solve these world hotspots, which climate change is really affecting. What I do think is that putting a national security lens increases the size of the microphone, and that's heartening. With that, thank you for joining us. On this microphone. On all microphones, on the global microphone. Thank you for joining us. See you next time.